Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. What else is happening um, in, in the Naval Institute world? Uh, so a couple things. Uh, we're, we're working on a maritime security dialogue uh, with uh, Vice Admiral John Nowell, the uh, Chief of uh, Naval Personnel. Uh, that should be uh, late next week. I know our uh, conferences and events team led by April Perico is trying to lock down the date. It'll be a virtual event uh, at CSIS and broadcast to the world. Uh, topic will be on racial diversity and inclusivity and what the uh, Task Force One Navy is doing uh, to improve um, uh, you know, racial diversity within the Navy. So that should be an interesting conversation. Uh, the October issue of Proceedings is uh, will go to the printers tomorrow. So we'll have our Blue Lines Day tomorrow. Much of our team will be in Beach Hall to do the final check on the magazine. That The uh, focus of the October issue is always the submarine force. And so we got a couple of, uh, a bunch of great articles by um, everybody from Admiral Cottle, who is the uh, commander of submarine forces, on down to some uh, really good pieces by Navy Lieutenant Submariner. So uh, look for the uh, October issue. A couple of people have called the Naval Institute to say, hey, I didn't get my September issue of proceedings yet, and or, or I didn't get it until 12 or 13 uh, September. Uh, we know that it went on time. Our printers printed it on time and put it in the U.S. mail. So this is uh, an issue with the U.S. Postal Service, um, which has been getting a lot of uh, high-level attention these days as we lead into the election season and the possibility of many, many absentee or you know vote from home ballots. Uh, but the uh, if you haven't gotten your proceedings, uh, your September proceedings, probably by the end of this week. Uh, so let's say by the uh, 17th or 18th of September, give our member services team a call. We'll put another copy in the mail to you. But if you haven't received it yet, you probably should. I received mine on Friday just a couple of days ago. So they just uh, they came late thanks to uh, the U.S. Postal Service. Um, yeah, so those are the, the big things for us right now. OK, yeah, I got mine on Saturday um, just as a benchmark. Um, so that's the 12th. Yeah. So great. It's a great issue. And as we're talking aviation, um, just mentioned you were talking about events coming up. Uh, kudos to the Tailhook Association for V-Hook 20. Um, there was it was a jump ball for for the organization and the staff, whether they were going to punt on doing a hook this year. Some of their board members recommended that be the course of action. Action and their executive director, our good friend Chaser Keithley, um, said, no, I, I want to do this virtual hook. And I will tell you, it came off very well. So kudos to Chaser and the tail hook staff. Um, as uh, our listeners know, we, we very much enjoyed being out in Reno last year. Um, and talking to the Top Gun staff, the Nautic staff, um, talking to the uh, the officials uh, like Proton, um, who was the president of Tailhook, um, just getting back in touch with the JOs who were out there. Uh, so we missed doing that this year, and we look forward to doing that again next year. But it was really great to hear from the JO panel, from detailers, from Purse 43. And the theme this year, which is a, here's a, a nice segue into our guest, was the training command. Our guest today is Lieutenant Commander Steve Moffat, U.S. Navy. He's the operations officer and a T-6 uh, flight instructor at Training Squadron 3 at NAS Whiting Field uh, in uh, Milton, Florida. Uh, he also uh, has previously written for proceedings and, and uh, won some essay contests with us. And uh, earlier this year at West, I was talking to Steve and his wife at uh, the breakfast uh, the first day of West, and we were talking about some 
um, articles that the preceding staff has been trying to generate uh, on what we call life hacks for junior officers or life, life hacks for you know, mid-grade enlisted personnel. And, and Steve mentioned that he was a, uh, a flight instructor. And I said, hey, would you write, write an article for us on how to succeed in flight school? So uh, Steve Moffat is the author of uh, one of the lead articles in the September issue of Proceedings, which is titled How to Succeed in Navy Flight School by Really Trying. So Steve, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Hi, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to good to talk to you again. Um, I'm glad we did get a chance to see each other down in West uh, before things really started to get uh, kind of crazy here. So we kind of reminisce about that often. And uh, Ward, thank you both for having me on this afternoon. So you were an E6B instructor pilot and uh, mission commander at Tinker. Um, and then you were also a company officer. What, when were you a company officer? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I was a company officer uh, from 2013 to 2015, uh, 13th company at the Naval Academy. We had the uh, the distinct privilege of running the Navy football up from, from Annapolis to, uh, at the time, it was at Philadelphia for the Army-Navy game. So running it from uh, Tecumseh Court there uh, all the way up to Philly. So that was our big uh, claim to fame uh, during the academic years while we were there. And so you, you went to, uh, to Pens- or Whiting after that tour. Is, have you been down there since then? Uh, no, a couple of stops in between. So after the Naval Academy, we actually went over down to, uh, over to Japan. I took the Ronald Reagan to Japan from San Diego. I was a shooter, uh, catapult officer on board the Ronald Reagan for a couple of years. Uh, had the, uh, had the real honor. That was a, a real fun tour, uh, and a great being stationed overseas for a couple of years. Uh, I went ahead, uh, after that went back to Oklahoma city, uh, for the FRS, the E6 is there for about a year, uh, waiting on a couple of boards. And then finally from there came down here to Whiting Field to serve as a uh, uh, E6, I'm sorry, a T6 uh, instructor pilot, and then uh, currently as the operations officer here for VT3. So you you may have been a shooter when Bus Snodgrass was a skipper out there for one of the, the Super Hornet squadrons. Yeah, the, I'm exactly sorry, the Legacy right. Hornet squadrons. Right. Yeah. Yep, we were out there together. Uh, I remember passing him in the P-Ways uh, a couple times, and, uh, and uh, I knew the face pretty well because I know he had uh, quite a bit of... Uh, uh, writing for both proceedings and uh, a couple other publications. So, so I knew him, uh, at least knew of him pretty well. Yeah, that's so he's been on the show a couple times. He's on our board um, and uh, well known for his book um, about his time as a speechwriter for General Mattis or Secretary right. Mattis. So uh, small world, small fleet. That's always great to connect the dots like that. That's right. It sure is. So the article is titled um, How to Succeed in Navy Flight School in parentheses by really trying. So let's talk about some of the elements there. What I wanted to do here was uh, really provide just kind of a, a 30,000 foot view, a roadmap for trying to put myself in the shoes of a, of a new student aviator uh, coming into the program. And, and just some, you know, there's a lot of things you got to know that the flight school is very much a, a fire hose effect as far as information coming in and, and, and trying to retain it. Um, but, you know, what are some just underlying characteristics or traits or, uh, uh, attributes that that one should try to embody to to find success here. What have we seen uh, as instructors uh, that creates or at least makes for a successful student? And so when I sat down and thought about it, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was that you know nobody cares more about your own success than than you do. Um, and, and it took me, I think, as in my own experience, uh, it took me a while uh, as a junior officer to really kind of internalize that lesson. And I didn't actually even hear that until I came back as a company officer at the Naval Academy. And I, I heard one of our battalion officers mention that same piece of advice uh, to midshipmen. And it kind of struck a chord, uh, at least with me, because 
Um, you know, the Navy is a big organization. Obviously, yeah, we care about everybody's success as instructor pilots. Um, like I mentioned in the article, I mean, our instructor pilots are, I truly believe, some of the best in the world. And they will go to great lengths uh, to, to tailor their instruction to every individual student. They'll spend uh, all, many hours away from their family. On, this is a short tour for them, you know, but they will, despite that, um, they'll, they'll come in early. They'll stay late. They'll, they'll go on cross countries with students uh, and really spend a lot of time trying to uh, impress that wisdom and knowledge and, and provide that quality training. But at the end of the day, you know, at each of there's three primary squadrons here, another two down in Corpus. Um, you know, we all have anywhere between 150 uh, to 180, depending on the time of the year, students on board. Um, and it's just it's a large number of students all trying to do the uh, get through the program. And, and so we can only provide so much uh, time and attention to each individual. Uh, and so the lion's share of effort. Uh, really has to come from that student. Uh, the student shouldn't come here expecting that, you know, we're going to, we're just going to kind of spoon feed everything they got to know. Uh, um, if they don't put in that effort or, or come in knowing that they need to uh, provide that, that uh, impetus on their own, and they're, they're going to be in for a rough, uh, a rude awakening because uh, that, most of that effort has to come from the student. There just, uh, there just isn't enough time for the instructors to, uh, to really, uh, handhold everybody through the program as much as, uh, as sometimes we may want to. Yeah, well, I like to tell the aviation selects uh, around the Naval Academy that if I'd tried as hard as a midshipman as I did as a flight student, I would have been a 4.0 student. And I was not a 4.0 student. I was a 2.5 student, right? <laughs> um, because of what you say, right? It's sort of something clicks if you're, if you're going to be a naval aviator. Something clicks uh, – maybe at API, maybe in primary, sooner is better, um, where you start to sort of internalize the fact that you have a responsibility. And when you say nobody cares about more about your success than you do, it doesn't mean be a backstabber or don't be a leader or whatever. It just means right. what you're saying. Um, the extra effort, you're not going to be spoon fed. Maybe you do book study on your own. Maybe you do a simulator uh, period when they have them available after hours. Um, yep. But but you've got to know everything about everything, whether it's a, a meteorological situation, whether it's how many coolie hats on the trim tab, you know, obviously air speeds, altitudes, um, how to do navigation, all of that stuff. But I'll tell you what, again, this is the intangible part about naval aviation. For me, I just I wanted to know everything about everything, unlike doubly yeah. e or thermo or whatever, where it was like. Tell me what I need to know to not flunk this. Otherwise, I don't care. That's not how I felt at all going through flight school. Right. Uh, that's a great point. Yeah, everybody, all, all of our students should want to be here. I mean, it's a competitive program. Uh, there's plenty of people who didn't get in uh, who want to be. So every, this should be uh, something that everybody wants to do. Is it hard? Yeah, it's going to be very difficult. And there are going to be a lot of times uh, that you're going to go home after a, a tough flight uh, wondering if you made the right decision. And that's, that's normal. I, I talked to a lot of students who, you know, kind of have a, a, a moment or two where they're like, man, I don't know if this, uh, this is for me. I don't know if I made the right decision coming here, but, uh, you know, I always kind of caution them, uh, to, to think really hard about that and to reflect flight school is not supposed to be fun. Flying is fun. Being a naval aviator is a, is a great career. It's a lot of fun most of the time. Uh, but I think most people will tell you the flight school piece, that's, that's not the fun part. That's, uh, that's not something that most of us would want to have to go through again uh, on the student side. And that's just that's just how it is. It's pretty normal, I would think. But, uh, 
you, you got to have some uh, inclination to want to do it uh, because, like you said, it's going to be hard, uh, pretty hard otherwise to, to stay focused and stay motivated. Steve, you start off by saying uh, the learning curve is steep. The T6B Texan is an 1,100 horsepower complex high-performance beast that would hardly meet the definition of an entry-level trainer anywhere but in the military. Yet students are expected to solo this aircraft after only 13 flights. So talk a little bit about the Texan. Talk a little bit about the, the environment of getting a, a, a student you know, a student naval aviator in that aircraft for the first time. And what sure. kinds of things you know, do, you, do you often see in terms of like the you know, uh, information overload? Sure. Yeah, great question. Uh, well, it, make no mistake, yeah, the, the T-6 is a very difficult aircraft to learn on uh, in many respects. In some respects, it's not. But uh, when I went through flight training, we were flying a T-34C, uh, which had half the horsepower. It was a 550 horsepower uh, aircraft, non-pressurized, uh, non-ejection seat. Um, it was still a difficult airplane, still complex. But uh, the T-6 is a pretty significant jump from what the Navy uh, had been using prior to that. So yeah, it's a, a turboprop aircraft, 1100 horsepower. And we, you compare, you know, what an entry level um, aircraft might be in the civilian world, like a Cessna 172 or a Piper. I mean, we have retractable landing gear, it's pressurized inside, it has complex hydraulic electrical systems, it has an ejection seat. Um, there's just a lot to deal with. It's a lot of airplane to kind of wrap your arms around. Uh, while you're just trying to start to learn how to fly. So it's a, it's a very steep learning curve. And we do start you out relatively slow. I mean, you do a lot of sims. We've got some really nice um, um, sims with some pretty decent visuals now, which they didn't have when I was going through. Uh, but nothing really replicates that first flight or two where you're sitting on the end of the runway, you're cleared for takeoff, and you have to push the power up um, to get, you know, in that first couple days, I think a lot of students are, are, uh, are taken aback by that and, and very quickly uh, find themselves behind the airplane, uh, meaning that the, you know, the airplane keeps flying, but mentally and physically they're, they're not quite caught up uh, to where they need to be. And so that can be a surprising and very sobering experience. Uh, but the training progression, the syllabus does a, a very good job of, of preparing folks for that. Uh, but again, you know, it, it's really on the student to put the time in, the prep work in, to do that chair flying that you know, we mentioned in the article. So um, the, the procedures are solid, that the switches, they know where the switches are. They know how to get through the checklist. Uh, because one of the jokes we often make, and for anybody that's gone through flight training, you realize like half of your brain capacity, uh, immediately vaporizes the minute you put, uh, sit down in that cockpit, right? Half your brain's out the window. So if, if the fundamentals aren't there, if you haven't done the prep work to at least know, uh, mechanically how to get through these checklists and things, it's going to be, um, it's going to be very difficult because you can expect half that brain power to be sucked away just by by virtue of sitting in that seat and having to deal with uh, with that machine. Well, that, that's a good segue to the next part of your article called "Get Comfortable Being Uncomfortable." Right? So, obviously, graded evolutions. Um, you know, strapping into a, an ejection seat. Um, I don't know. Do do they wear a, a G suit in the T six? They do, yeah. They okay. got a G suit as well as the typical survival vest that uh, the folks right remember from the earlier days. But yeah, you do have the G suit now, and they're wearing uh, oxygen. Yeah, they do have their full full oxygen mask, full helmet. Um, the oxygen mask is 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 on and secure uh, shortly after engine start, all the way through the flight until uh, until right until you're back in the chalk. So yeah, um, so for your fam one, for your fam one, right? You again, yep. you talk about. 
you, you know, if you haven't done the book study and now, okay, let's up the ante here by putting you in this completely foreign environment, then you put G on the airplane, right? right? And now your instructor's asking you things along the way and you got to talk on the radio and, and you, you're wearing a G suit and you're, you're breathing O2. This is reminiscent of when I went through VT-10, our first flight was in a T-2. That was the, those were the bragging rights we had over our pilot buddies who were flying the T-34, right, with a boom mic, no G-suit. Um, it's like, well, our first flight is in a jet, um, you know, wearing, wearing all the stuff. And, and so what I, why that resonates with me is the number one guy in my class uh, tried it after B-3 because he completely could not get comfortable being uncomfortable. It's not yeah. about book smarts. It's about, okay, now do it upside down and now write on your kneeboard and now talk on the radio and now yeah. answer that your instructor's question. And, and, you know, so this is the, let's call it the intangible part about naval aviation, right? So um, what would you advise of a, a, a fledgling that's all freaked out about what I just said? How can they best prepare for that part of it? Well, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to uh, know exactly what to expect because, like you said, despite how good our simulators are and how good studying they can do, nothing can really prepare you for the feeling of that first flight, you know, of getting in there and, and having the Gs come on and the G suit inflate and, and feeling that, that pressure and, and all the different distractions, the radio buzzing at you, uh, the TCAS, uh, all the alerts going off. There's just a lot of uh, bells and whistles, it seems like, happening all at once. The best thing we can say is, look, Focus on the focus on the fundamentals, right? Come in, know the procedures, know the checklist, the emergencies, all the stuff cold, uh, and get in there and and be humble about it. Uh, if I could provide a fourth uh, characteristic of success and one that I, I think overarches really all of them is just be humble about what you're doing. Show uh, you know realize that um, this is a difficult undertaking. Uh, it's going to take a while to get used to, and no matter how much success you might have enjoyed up to this point. Um, this is something completely different. It's a whole different ball game. It's a whole different way of learning. Um, you know, it's, it's not something that can be just uh, academically studied and learned and, and something that you get good at on the ground. You have to get up and do it. Uh, and so it's going to take some humility and some um, maybe some swallowing of the pride. We have a lot of students that, uh, you know, they feel like maybe they have to fight through air sickness or things like that, and they want to kind of hide these things. And and we, we try to be very clear, like, no, you, it's important that you communicate this because if you're not feeling well, if you're un, like physically uncomfortable in the airplane, there's no training or learning happening, right? We've all been there. I think most of us have probably been airsick from time to time or, or something like that. And we can appreciate that there's not much to be thinking about um, or trying to take in if you're not feeling well or not feeling up to the task. So it's important to communicate that, stay humble about, uh, you know, what it is you're doing and realize it's going to take some time and it's not something you should... Um, expect to be able to conquer or master uh, even all the way up until the solo those first 12 or 12 flights that you do in a check ride in a solo um you know you're not getting winged at that point uh, all we want to be able to do is, is make sure that you can operate the aircraft safely uh get it out take it off uh you know get into the area do some landings and come back um but it, the process is far from over so it takes uh, there's certainly some humility is, is a big part of it i think uh and realizing that um you know this is, this is something that unlike anything you've ever done before so all the you know, we mentioned in the article, hey, what got you here won't get you there. So it's going to take a different kind of uh, of mentality, a different kind of study and some patience, uh, different ways of, of doing it to, to be able to find success here. 
Steve, you mentioned in the article that a lot of students at the end, as they're, you're debriefing them, they wish they had more time. So yeah. talk about the pace. What's the pace of learning? How many flights a week? How often do they fly per day? How, how fast does this come at a student? Sure. Uh, faster than they want, I can tell you. <laughs> um, so here at Whiting, um, we are the, the contract per Sinatra. Uh, is The whole program should take 27.9 weeks. That's what, over time. That is what uh, you know, Sinatra, the Navy has decided how long it should take from a student to get from the first day of ground school to their last uh, last event in the syllabus. And, and that 27, we'll call it 28 weeks, that clock starts from their first day in ground school. And so, so that's primary. Uh, You're talking about primary. That's just primary. Okay. Yes, sir. That's, that's just the primary flight. It doesn't include API, it doesn't include advanced. The primary um, phase of flight training should take 27.9 weeks here at Whiting. Uh, and, and so that's that's pretty quick, uh, you know, and that factors in like we're dealing with now. Most of this week, we're, we're dealing with uh, the hurricane um, uh, weather, tropical storm here. So there'll be, uh, unfortunately, not as much flying as we'd like to do. Um, so that kind of forces us, hey, we've got to make up some ground here. Um, so when they come into the flight line after they've done their sims and in their academics, they'll come and they'll do their FAM-1 with their on-wings, their assigned instructor who will take them, for the most part, with, a, with, with three exceptions. They do three flights off-wing, but most of their flights prior to their solo will be flown with a dedicated instructor. Um, and they will fly them typically once a day. It'll be uh, once every single day, Monday through Friday, uh, until they get to their solo. Uh, once they get to their solo... They move into the aerobatic block of training, and that's when they'll start doing two flights a day. They'll fly out, they'll do their first event, and they'll, they'll go into a local airport somewhere and grab a bite to eat, some gas. They'll do the second event on the way back. So now they're doing two a day, and they might go into the next day uh, and start getting the second, you know, and, and start ramping up a little bit. And now we might also start mixing in the weekends. So we fly seven days a week here uh, at Training Wing 5. Uh, and so they might start flying on the weekends and they get into the instrument stage and the formation stage. Uh, and when they go on their cross countries, uh, they might do uh, three events in a day. They might do uh, they take off out of here on their cross country. They do an instrument hop, another instrument hop, maybe follow that up with a navigation ride or a night contact. You know, so there's some context switching that happens as well. Uh, but they're doing three events. By the end of the program, they're, they might be doing uh, they can expect to be doing two to three events a day. So the pace picks up pretty rapidly. Um, and it doesn't, and, and I'll, you know, I'll be, be the first to know. And I realize it doesn't leave a lot of time for that after action kind of reflection, you know, coming back from a flight and trying to be able to internalize all the lessons that were learned. There's a very limited amount of time to do that because you got to be able to turn around and start studying and preparing for the next flight, you know, making the flight plans and the jet logs and, and understanding the discuss items. So is there, uh, there isn't enough time to do everything you want to do, but that's part of the that's part of the training, right? It's the pressure. Um, there's never enough time to do everything you need. You got to be able to prioritize, task manage, and do the best with the limited resources that you have. Uh, because, man, you know, when you get out to the fleet, you're never going to have enough time to prepare for those, those missions. The mission's got to get done. The, the time on target is what it is. And we don't have the luxury to be able to take off when we want. So uh, that's part of the training and uh, part of the experience here. It starts here at, at uh, flight training. Yeah, that, the analogy I like to use with respect to what you just said is it's like a video game where as soon as you get competent at a level, there are more more moving parts. The level goes up, right? So you're always yeah. on the edge of of anxiety and and incompetence, um, right? right? You want to push the envelope that way. So um, as you said, you got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So if you were 
you know, uh, National Honor Society in high school and you were a 4-0 person and, and, you know, always an honor grad and a varsity letter winner and now you get to flight school, you're probably not going to be on top of your game to your comfort level as you have been to that point, right? That's just exactly part right. of it, you know? And so I think that's where some overachievers really start to, to freak out a little bit. And I, also, I, I have a good friend of our families who went to flight school, um, was this guy's a, a Mensa-level genius, um, was, was getting airsick a lot, didn't like the pace of not, not um, knowing what was going on. And so this is how smart this guy was. Because usually if you try it, you wind up going surface warfare. He had tried it and went nuke power. <laughs> so, oh, <wow. laughs> and he did very well. Um, and got out and, and made a gazillion dollars as a financial planner. And now he's retired, retired, and he's five years younger than I am. But that's a different story. My point is, is that he was not the kind of guy who was ready to be a naval aviator because of what we're talking about with respect to being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So um, right. you, you, your last category in the article is do not go it alone. So you're saying in the outset, nobody cares about you as much as you do, but at the same time, don't be a maverick. Don't go right. it alone. <laughs> be a goose. Be a goose. Yes, everybody yeah. should be a goose, except for the not follow Nate tops and hit your head on the canopy thing. But, but right. what do you mean by do not go it alone? So this is it's a little bit of a balance, right? So uh, we find uh, that the students who typically do uh, fairly well in flight school are the ones who who uh, go out of their way to seek out others uh, and, and learn from other students who are further along in the program. Um, you know, it, yeah, they're, they're not going to be experts, but man, they've gone through, maybe they've reached their first solo and they moved on to the aero, 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 aerobatics block or the instruments. You know, they've at least kind of been there, done that a little bit. So those students that, that purposefully seek those students out and ask for advice, you know, what what, is, what did you wish you know when uh, you knew when you were going through the early stages of our contact uh, flights? You know, what what are some of the lessons that you gleaned or what do you wish someone had told you earlier on? You know, those students typically do well. Uh, and also the group studying does seem um, to provide a, an extra edge when it comes to, to learning those fundamental skills and the book knowledge and the academics. Uh, number one, it, it kind of keeps you accountable for studying. You know, it's like having an exercise partner. That was the analogy we drew in the book. Uh, or in the article, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to go running every day. Well, you know, maybe the I'm not feeling very well one day or, or the weather's just a little crappy and um, I'll skip today. You know, but if you have a partner or somebody to go with who's going to hold you accountable, you know, you're going to be much more likely to, to get out and get it done. And, and the same applies to uh, studying in groups. So there seems to be um, a little bit more accountability there uh, when when you're uh, and you have to study with a group. Uh, and number two, it, it helps clear or at least fill in some of the knowledge gaps that, that someone might have in flight school. Um, again, being able to, to mix in some knowledge from folks who are further down the, the, the pipeline. Uh, and when we talk to students, I've done a handful of what we call training review boards now, or TRBs, uh, you know, where a student has had some kind of struggle in the program. And, and now we're uh, sadly, you know, at a point where they may be looking at getting a trident. And one of the last steps uh, in the process before they get a trident. And job of the TRB is not to make that decision, but just to make sure that the training has been conducted appropriately the, uh, the, in, in, in accordance with all the instructions that we have to do so. But we, we typically will talk to the student in that process and we'll say, hey, what was your studying like? You know, how did you, how did you uh, sit down after a flight or, or prepare for a flight? And, and a lot of times what we hear is, well, you know, I kind of studied alone or, or I would, I would, I would do, do this by myself. And there was a, a lot of that seemed to keep coming up. You don't hear that a lot 
um, from from folks who are really spending a lot of time and effort trying to seek out those and study in groups. So yeah, a little bit anecdotal, but it does seem that um, those students who study in groups do um, a little bit better, or at least are a little bit better prepared and know what to expect. But it has to be very well balanced because um, there's a, a, a dark side to that, too. You don't want to become overly reliant on the group. Um, you got to be able to do it yourself or be, be prepared to uh, come up with the answer yourself. Know where the information is, what document, what publication it comes out of. Uh, the example that uh, we typically come uh, run into here in flight school is prior to every flight, the student's got to come with a mission data card ready to go. Part of that mission data card includes the takeoff and landing data, you know, the total data that we uh, they calculate based on the temperature, uh, that they uh, forecast temperature. They find out, hey, how, how much runway is it going to take to take off? You know, how much runway is it going to burn if I land? What if it's wet? What if the flaps don't work? So they go through all these configurations. Um, and they got to be able to do that information themselves based off these little spaghetti charts and an ATOP name. Um, you know, but a lot of times uh, that information has already been predetermined. People have been doing this for a long time. Uh, there's charts out there that groups will put up like, hey, if the temperature is this, here's here's the answer to the test. Uh, and so it's very uh, tempting to go in and just just fill in the blanks based off of what someone else computed. Someone else did the work on that. So, hey, here's what I'm just going to do it. And they do that over over many weeks and then they get to a check ride or something. And, and the IP says, OK, hey, this looks great. Let's say the temperature is this. Uh, rerun that told data right now, right in front of me. Uh, and because a student hasn't had a chance to do that maybe a couple of weeks because they've been relying on that group and now they struggle to, to find the right charts and they can't get the right answers. And then uh, just like that, the check ride's over. So it, it does have to be balanced. Um, right. There's a there's a golden mean somewhere in there between too much and not enough studying in groups. But uh, it does seem that uh, uh, on the whole, those students that they can find uh, seek out group feedback or group study and uh, are, are a little bit uh, better advantage uh, going through the program. Well, plus that cohort even if you select for a different type model series, you know, you'll see each other in the fleet, as we said at the outset, um, yeah. you know, with, with you and bus uh, being on, on Reagan together, what you're building there with the, the studying together, um, it will continue uh, in naval aviation. I'm thinking we were in Shanahan's in Pensacola and somebody would say firelight and whoever they were looking at had to go through the bold phase, right. In a social situation, <laughs> You know, yeah. this was serious. You couldn't blow them off like, ah, sure. No, like, no, now go through the steps. And, and that kept you honest, right? You, it, it, was, it was really a good way to train. The other thing about the Rio program, and now this is grandpa going way back, uh, for, for, we had simulators that you, if you, again, if, if the first question they would ask in a FENAB uh, or in a, uh, in a review board was, how many hours have you done in the simulators like after hours? And I guarantee you there was a relationship between lack of hours in the simulator on your own time and performance during uh, during graded flights. Uh, in in our case, we were flying the T-39. Um, and, you know, you're running intercepts using this F-8 radar. There's G on the airplane. It's stressful. you got to know what you're doing. And it has to be second nature. And so we would have to – there was nobody in the simulator. We would run each other at night. There, It would be a student that would run the simulator for another student. And you could try to trick them. And in so doing, as the, the instructor for another student, you would learn more about the process. You know, so there's actually learning in that way. And I will admit it was a pain because you'd go all the way home. And I lived up on northeast side, uh, you know, scenic highway area of Pensacola. And we'd have to drive all the way back to Mainside, 
you know, which was a long way to go. Um, and, and, but you just have to do it. Right. And as you said, like a workout partner, these people would keep you honest, you're good buds. And I was later in the rag with these guys. Uh, and in some cases they were in my squadrons going forward. Some of them went on to ship command nu- nuclear powered carriers and so forth and so on. So, um, this matters, right? And, and it is like you've said, there's a fine line between too much prep and not enough, but I would bias towards the too much, you know, because yeah. definitely if you don't do enough, you're going to, you're going to, you know, screw it up. Yeah, no, that's true. I think regardless of what you end up uh, flying, uh, naval aviation is always going to be a, a team sport. So um, it helps to, helps to instill that, that concept now. So what are, what are people winding up selecting out of primary? What's sort of the, the ratio of people going helos versus props versus uh, strike? Uh, it, that, those ratios really haven't changed too much, um, from, from typically what they have been. We've got, uh, I'd say the majority, uh, as usual, end up uh, crossing the street down the South field, uh, for the rotary program. Uh, and we get a, a handful, maybe one or two, uh, every week or so end up going maritime, either, uh, uh, P8 most likely. And we don't get as many E6s, of course, uh, that always, uh, uh makes me happy though. when we, we produce an E6 guy every once in a while, a girl. Um, and then we get a handful uh, as well go and strike uh, either down to Kingsville or Meridian. Um, so it's, uh, I'd say the majority would be Southfield. I'd have to, I'd be guessing on the exact percentages, at least uh, right now, but uh, uh, I want to say 50, 60 uh, percent probably going, going Southfield uh, for Rotary and then maybe another uh, 20, 15 to 20 maritime, uh, 15, 20, maybe to, uh, 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 strike and then the, whatever's left over the few few we get going to e6 but uh, so the uh the helo guys wind up flying the h57 right but i know leonardo drs just got the contract for the advanced training helo when does that did. come online uh yep there that should be coming up we should see the first one i want to say january december january uh in, as the get into the new year we should start seeing the first uh uh helo trainer come on board i know we've got some instructors uh who are training right now to to get up to speed on the new platform uh and my understanding is they should they, they're going to see the first uh actual platform here uh, at whiting uh sometime in january i believe is a target right now and so the strike guys wind up flying a t45 and it, it actually that's a step back right because the t6 is a glass cockpit and the t45 is not quite um, you know, a glass that's cockpit. right. Yeah. The T45, uh, is still, uh, mostly steam gauges at the moment. So, uh, yeah, they're going from a pretty modern glass, uh, uh cockpit with three primary, uh, multifunction displays or MFDs to a uh, kind of the traditional glass cockpit that, um, uh, we might've seen, you know, in the T34 or other, uh, some of the older aircraft out there. And the prop guys go to Corpus and what are they flying down there? Is it still the T44? Till the T44, yeah, that'll be uh, for the foreseeable future. Both um, uh, PA and E6 now will fly T44s, um, unlike when, back when we used to do the joint uh, pilot training. I was one of the last people to go through uh, the T1s, actually, up in Vance with the Air Force. But now it's all all Navy, all T44 down in Corpus. Uh, then, of course, the T45s, uh, Kingsville and Meridian. And then you also have a, a tilt rotor pipeline that's kind of a hybrid. What's involved in that? Yeah, the CV-22 uh, coming up to replace the COD. Um, I want to say, I have to look. I, I don't know if they've accepted anybody just yet for the CV-22 program. I know that's coming up, um, and it's definitely on the horizon, but I, we haven't seen any of our students go that route. Well, what are the Marines, um, what do the MV guys do? What do they wind up doing? 
A little uh, bit of helo, a little both. bit of prop so They go down yeah. to Southfield for some helo training, and they also do corpus uh, for the fixed wing side. So they do, as you said, get a little bit of a hybrid uh, experience uh, on their on the MV22 row. Because I think that's what the CMV guys are going to do too. They they said this at the the tailhook panel. They'll they'll do that same pipeline. Uh, yep. for the yeah, it'll be a similar uh, process for them. And Steve, how's the throughput going right now for uh, naval aviators? Is there uh, a back? Is there a backlog? Do they get to get to Pensacola? Do they wait a while before they start training? Or it's actually not too bad, Bill. At the moment, um, we're uh, we're actually on track to even despite the hurricane we're we're sitting under right now, on track to exceed our goal uh, here at BT three for the fiscal year. So uh, our goal is two hundred and twenty one uh, completers for the fiscal year, uh, and we're at two hundred and eleven as of today. So we've got to get at least, and we're on track to get. Uh, at least 10 more and uh, very likely uh, more than that through by the end of the fiscal year. So, uh, and that's uh, true for all the other two squadrons here as well. So we're actually on, uh, on or above glide slope as far as getting folks through the program, Uh, a little bit of a delay. Um, We, you know, there was a time when the uh, aircraft ability, aircraft availability was uh, uh, not quite where we wanted to see it, but that's improved uh, significantly over the past few months. Uh, and you know, the, Current weather, notwithstanding, we've been uh, we've been pretty fortunate to uh, get out and, and get a lot of stuff done with the the weather holding off for the most part. So we're uh, we're doing we're doing pretty well as far as throughput um, and not having any real real significant hangups uh, at least here at primary. So have you had any uh, COVID situations that have affected the amount of access you've been able to get, or has that been a non-factor? Oh, we have. I wouldn't say it was an, it's a non-factor, uh, but we've been uh, going to pretty great lengths here to to really mitigate that. So they've got uh, temperature screening here at the gate, uh, so they won't even let you on the base if your temperature exceeds a certain limit. Uh, everybody, of course, is wearing masks. Uh, we've been just uh, increasing the frequency of uh, cleaning all the surfaces uh, and, and doing all the um, you know standard mitigation practices. And, and folks have been pretty good about, um, you know, following uh, following the rules and staying home. Um, you know, we're not allowed, of course, uh, uh, to go out or really do a whole lot. So it's uh, to and from work for the most part. Um, and we've had a few, you know, a few instructors who have uh, either been exposed to somebody or have, uh, you know, come down with the virus themselves. Um, of course, they get quarantined for um, through recovery or for at least 14 days if there's no symptoms uh, and then come back to work. So uh, you know, we we did have a little bit of a rash uh, maybe a month or two ago where uh, we had a, a large number of folks who were affected by that. Uh, and, and sure, it, it did affect the um, our uh, training capacity a little bit, um, but you know we've been uh, really doing a pretty strong job of, uh, of mitigating it, despite being in Florida, uh, which you know as, as you probably know is one of the uh, worst places in the country as far as uh, COVID goes. So uh, we've been doing a pretty good job of keeping the bubble at least here at Whiting intact and, uh, and people have been pretty good about that as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's not, not nearly as bad as it could have been. Um, you know, I'd say it was a marginal, uh, impact at, at most. And, and even, like I said, despite that, we're still able to meet our, uh, our production goals for the year. Well, that's good to hear. Our guest has been, uh, Lieutenant Commander Steve Moffitt, the operations officer, instructor pilot at, uh, training squadron three at NAS, uh, uh Whiting field. His article in the September issue of Proceedings is titled, How to Succeed in Navy Flight School, in parentheses, by really trying. So, Steve, uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you, Ward. It's great talking to you today, and uh, looking forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, fly safe, Steve. Will do. Thank you very much. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.